Constructed Criticism is brought to you by our three amazing sponsors. Grey Viking Games, Oasis Games, and PureMDGO.com. You can find them directly in the links in the show notes and use the codes associated with each sponsor. We appreciate each of them and definitely think that you should check them out for all your Magic the Gathering needs. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 379th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your Lear-hating host, Mason, through my Lear-loving host, Abe, and my It's Just Right host, Spencer. How are y'all doing today? You know, I'm doing pretty good. I do have a question, though, because didn't, uh, you know, one of the questions that's been asked on this podcast is, is the red card better than the blue card, right? Which one of those went farther in the tournament, Mason? I would argue that Restless Stormseeker didn't pick up a single loss this weekend. I and <laughs> I mean, it did in the finals, right? Uh, it did not. It wasn't in the deck, was it? What it was. It, it was in that teamer deck. It went further then. <laughs> 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 I spent a lot of time looking over the deck list for Worlds, as shown right there. Am I wrong? I, maybe I'm wrong. No, right it is there. Line. Okay. Okay. There are two Restless Man, Stormers. you made me doubt myself. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Mason's card went farther at Worlds. So, loss, so, so, Abe, tell me, whose card is better? The card that goes further in the World Championship or the one who has more copies in the World Championship? I mean, this is such a loaded question. Like, <laughs> the, <laughs> like the, the card is like... Lear's just so much more defining of the format right now. It's like literally it was a card played like to stop the swap. And it was so good. It's hard to know what's so good and what's so dependent. You know, it's such a philosophical question. Like, should we be results-oriented by the better card getting second? Or should we look at the impact overall? It really is such a great and a beautiful intro, especially as we make sure to spend some time this week before the show talking about how we should make every episode specifically for the new listeners. And I'm sure new listeners, this totally makes sense for them. Everyone, we're going to have a fun episode today learning about uh, some lessons from the World Championship. I don't know if you've heard, but the Magic Gathering World Championship happened this past weekend, and we have a new champion. Before we get into that, I'll just say, all of our World Champions for the last two years, Fairies Masters. So if you want to be a Master of Magic, get a Master of Fairies. I think that's the new bar, the new quota. But either way, we have a lot to talk about. But first, we do need to do the always improving portion of the show. It is the main reason we are here on this podcast, trying to get better and improve. And Spencer, I'm going to let you fire away first. What's your always improving moment? Oh, man. I had so many this week, uh, mostly because I just... It, it's funny, because we were supposed to record... We normally record on Mondays, but we're recording on Tuesday today. And then last night, like, before bed, I just fired up a bunch of the decks from this tournament to, like, really get in some games with them. And I had a lot of moments this week, but I actually want to talk about things that happened before that even happened, uh, which is when the unfortunate uh, events of the deck lists for this event getting leaked happened. Um, first of all, I just want to say, so we could just cover it now. I don't think any of us were happy that that happened. We all probably all felt bad for the competitors. It really sucked. Um, it was great for my article. Yeah. <laughs> <be> it's <laughs> probably it great for us as content me. creators, but like, <laughs> In all honesty, I don't think any of us, if any of us put ourselves in the position of those those competitors, we were all like, man, that really sucks that now you have to do like 40, 20 to 40 more hours of work minimum 
to compete in this event. That is, that really sucks, especially after like you've submitted your deck, you can't change your mind. <laughs> like you're done. You're supposed to be done <laughs> now, or, or like focusing on draft. Like a lot of people probably were like, I'm gonna submit my deck, and then after my deck, I'm just gonna jam drafts, and like all of a sudden, anybody who jam drafts first that that changed for. That being said, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is just kind of like those moments of of not both not questioning yourself um, and, and stuff like that. So the one that I want to talk about is actually Sculptor of Winter. Uh, we saw that in Paulo Vitor Domitor Rose's list, friend of the podcast. Uh, I should invite him on. Uh, he submitted Sculptor of Winter in his deck list. And what's really funny is this is actually something that I had thought about um, a lot, this format. What 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 mana creature should you play between Sentinel, between Lotus Cobra, between Sculptor of Winter? And Sculptor of Winter was actually on my radar as something that doesn't die to um, Spike Feed Hazard. And that doesn't that uh, the other one is is it shambling gas is the name of the the one one yeah yeah so like there there are a few cards that like when you're playing lotus carpet which I played a lot of in this deck because you get to attack and use man at the same time uh, shambling gas is like a beating when you're playing lotus cobra and uh, the other one being I can't remember the name of the flipland card off the top of my head. Tango Floor Hedron. Thank you. Hedron was the only word I can remember. Uh, Like, you just get kind of beaten down pretty bad against those black decks. Obviously, in this tournament, it didn't matter. I don't think a single person submitted a black deck. But Sculptor Winter actually fixes a lot of those problems while still getting to be aggressive against some of those more controlling builds. And it's funny. the, The always improving moment for me is that if you have an idea that you believe is good and you have a good reason for it, you have a plan for it, you should test it before discounting it. Because the reason that I didn't do it is because I don't play as much much magic as other people right now. Clearly, somebody else would have already done this if it was good. Now, what's funny is Paulo actually had the second best record among the mono green players in this event with his mono green deck. Um, it, mono green did not do good in this event for what it's worth. Um, but I do think that like the deck building moments that I learned from that and just made me reflect on like, why haven't you done this? This is something you've already thought about was really insightful. The other thing that it also did is it fixed a lot of my problems that I had with all the, the, I mean, Paulo didn't have this problem because of the way he built his deck, but the, the deck really did have a problem sometimes with, uh, activating your brawls with snow and this actually counts as a snow permanent that would tap itself to kill something um and since then i have played mono green to great success with with that with that in mind so that that's kind of my always improved moment is just like if you have an idea test it don't don't just like i don't know don't have self-doubt just because for for like no reason so anyway that's it for me Abe, I think yours actually kind of ties into something similar to Spencer's. So while I have something I want to say about Spencer's, I think I should let you go first, and then we can do a little two-for-one, a little divination in this house. Yeah. Did so, you just uh, say my... divination is the two-for-one, though? Because, like, come on, man. Blubbering. Every episode someone's first. I don't know how much they know about magic. Bl- this is oh. such a good behind-the-scenes joke. 
we made a big effort about we should be like really conscious. It's everyone's first episode. I love it. I love We've it. We're doing 380, and I'm over here like, what if I bring it up a bunch on the front of the scene? Yeah, how you're 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 being a sweetheart about? to Spencer right now. Uh, so yeah, my <laughs> yeah. always improving moment this week actually didn't come from Worlds really, uh, but has come from the effort that uh, Mason and me and uh, a handful of of uh, our peers are putting into preparing for the Invitational. Where, um, you know, we're looking over all the modern deck lists, all the standard deck lists, kind of trying to find ways that we can maybe, you know, roll the pu- push the ball a little further uphill and get a get a little bit of an edge up on the competition. Um, and specifically, I've been playing a lot of Hammer Time. There have been a lot of different builds out there. And, you know, Mason, like, put out an idea of something tangential to something else we're working on um, based on, like, his observation. And I was like, you know what? that looks like really good and I'm going to try it where a lot of people like it, the message had gone unread for like, or like unresponded to for maybe like two or three days. And I was like, wait, this idea actually has something to it. And it very much linked to your Spencer. Like I was like, instead of just dismissing it um, as like, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people who read it did, or, you know, maybe didn't think about it more than for a second being like, well, the whole concept is bad. Maybe it's not worth it. Um, I was like, I, I want to try this because if it is good, the upside is just so high, and um, you know, it's really you... important to keep an open mind. And that's really what I, uh, what I feel is the thing to take away is that it, you're never, it's never a bad idea to think outside the box, and to when you see an idea that you really might believe in or, or has you know legs to to take the time to go for it. You know, uh, so I have two questions. Uh, I have a comment and then a question. The first comment I want to make is I think that too often that we we as magic players might value our time a little too highly because we all have limited time. And the truth is, is like, if you have an idea that you believe is good, don't just dismiss it. Like, like this, this is how you are supposed to spend your time. Now that being said, like there's probably some amount of the time that instead of actually putting it to practice and jumping into a league on moto or jumping into ladder that you can actually just like say, okay, what are the problems with this? And then, evaluate from there my question is is this about deflecting palm is this what's happening right now no that had to do with uh <laughs> with the process of testing this idea where i played against burn and the only way i could die was deflecting palm okay okay i sort of put some evil in his life and i tried to promote it through twitter to put more evil in <laughs> no but i i think life. it's i think it's a good lesson to learn is like wh- like what's the cost of putting uh why well, don't even remember the name the 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 uh, sculptor, of winter. sculptor of winter thank you in your deck like you're not playing lotus cobra for five matches like whatever like that does yeah, not exactly. actually cost you anything and and if it and if it plays out well and it's everything you want you know then you find out that and that's like so useful i think that often a lot of a lot of people get tied up in and myself included at times get tied up in making sure you know we don't do anything that sounds dumb or like looks stupid when we're like preparing especially in groups because it like you know our uh, our appearance of being, you know, smart and knowledgeable magic players matters a lot to to us. And um, but but it's not a bad thing to to say yes to an idea um, and and try to explore its possibilities instead of instead of shutting it down or uh, you know saying maybe and then not doing anything with it because the the times where you do hit are worth so much that all of the times that you miss 
uh, tend to be tend to be worth it if you count it all up. What's funny is that it is both true from an EV perspective and true from like a clout perspective. Like if you like hit once, it's remembered for like Mason's like yeah, but it's true, right? Like you know what happens if you miss? You have a slightly worse card, like probably that you draw. You know, I mean it, it, it's just so low. Like the, the, yeah, you learn a way not to invent the light bulb. You know, it's, right? It's but the, when you do invent the light bulb, you invented the light bulb. It's, yeah. it's pretty great. So, you know, just yeah. staying open-minded and, and uh, you know, not not allowing myself to kind of fall into to group things is really my always improving moment I wanted to share. So, Mason, you said you have some stuff to say? Yeah, I mean, I, there's, you know, a lot's happened here. But the thing I'll say, I'll kind of do this in reverse order here, I guess, to make it the easiest for the listeners, is that first, when, you know, when it comes to, like, those, like, do you have these ideas or not, I think that, like, because uh, you know, Spencer said, like, you should really hop in there. I think for some people, they're like, I, I mean, I'd love to. I just don't have the time as much as I would like to. You know, like like Spencer, you know, they they have jobs and families and kids. And, you know, me and Abe just have some anime to watch. But, uh, you know, our priorities, while both equally important, take a little less time. Uh, <laughs> either way. But you should think about it and, like, think about the critical thinking that we talk about a lot on the show. Like, how does this work with the plan? How does this work with the deck? And if it passes those baseline things you should you'll be really good and you should go from there because there are a lot of things in magic that interact in weird ways and weird pieces and those sort of interactions change things a lot i actually have a great example of this i'm writing my article this week about uh is it epiphany and alrens and should it go or not and i basically have a portion where i'm defending not banning alrens epiphany which doesn't matter here or there but i, I propose the idea of what if thalia guardian of thraben was in standard what if that card was introduced in Crimson Vow, were injected today, just randomly, now it's part of the format. How does that affect the format? And, you know, and, like, I had some quick thoughts about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably really good for the white deck. It would do a lot to slow down the, is it doing a bunch of turns thing? So now it's an additional two mana, and I have to spend the mana there. And as I thought about it more, like, as I was writing it, right, I was like, oh, wow, this has huge implications for green. Because green plays almost all creatures, but actually 12 to 10 of the creatures, depending on your build, are actually not creature spells they're non-creature and so your white deck would actually get a huge edge in this other thing and those kind of rippling effects are why magic is so cool and a lot of people like to think that they think there's things through all the way and they would have you know they're claiming that oh obviously when i say that to them but i'm you know i'm smart enough to say that i didn't think of that when, when i first proposed the idea and like once i got a little more into it the ripple started to happen so just think about those things and then testing it can go a really long way um along those same lines my always improving moment kind of ties into this in another way where I have been trying a lot of various decks in modern. I wanted to try being able to beat hammer time, basically. So playing like a lot of blue white, a lot of elementals, um, ghosting some four color builds. I, I just really want to be able to beat hammer. Uh, and so all that sort of happened. I'm trying, wasn't super happy with a lot of the decks and came to some conclusions. I was like, okay, I want to put some more time in on blue, red, Merktide. And the idea has been floated around a bunch. This is kind of public knowledge. I like consider might be better than thought scout. And I was pretty opposed to the idea um, when first brought up, because I think that the raw card count, like the amount of material in places is actually very important for the blue red deck. And that it really uh, is impactful for some of their best draws. Your deck loses a lot of power and it loses thought scout. You can't turn to a Merc tide. We're having like, Fetch lane, go and have removal spell or thought scour, uh, thought cast. Sorry, thought scour is very important. Uh, but I was like, people keep saying the consider is good. I should try the consider. Da da da. And what I learned when I was playing the the consider in the deck is that it it is worse than thought scour in a lot of game one situations. 
But in games two and three, you get a lot more selection of your cards for finding your cyborg cards. So it's kind of led to this like conclusion and this like development and process of like, okay, how do I want to set my deck up? Do I want my deck to be like really, really good in game ones and almost like more affinity style where like, I'm going to kind of spike these game ones and lose percentage points in the uh, games two and threes. Or am I willing to have a weaker card for the game ones and game two and three, I'll have more selection and more things. And I, you know, right now I'm landing on the side of like, well, you play more game two and threes. And I think the cyborg cards I'm choosing to put in my deck are more like hammers than they are like buffers. And since they're more like hammers, I want to have access to them. So having a card that actually allows me to look through my deck instead of just put cards in zones, I think is much stronger. And so that was kind of my always improving moment from this week was really trying to learn from like what these other things are doing and trying to figure out why these people are uh, saying this because no one ever told me that like the reason they want to uh, consider is four games two and three. And that might even be the reason, but I think it's a strong enough reason to have the conversation about. And I think it's worth like, I don't think it will always be right to have consider. I think I could build my sideboard of my deck in a way where I actually want to be a turbo mark type deck. And so it's also, to go there. Awesome. it's also, I think one of those moments where like people often don't understand splits on cards, right? Like when you're looking at a deck list, people are like, why did you split these? weird example of this is actually uh, i played twin bolt for an rptq uh in a teamer deck over i don't know if it was lightning striker or the equivalent of lightning strike or whatever but people are like spencer you have like this weird split of this card that's like completely unplayable uh, and it was like yeah because the mono red matchup specifically twin bolts are really good against like right now a tarka red actually just gets hosed by this card and if you draw it you actually usually just win that game no matter what and i think that the same thing is true in the exact situation you're talking about right like in certain metagames people actually just can't deal with a, a murktide that early so if that's true how many thought scours do i need to have a percentage of murktides that work there and while that isn't the conclusion you came to that's how splits happen let's uh move on to the main training grounds portion um, of the show. So we're going to be talking about learning from worlds this week. Um, I probably the place to start is what happened a week ago with the leaks and the decks. And there are basically a couple style of decks that came uh, to worlds. And we're going to kind of talk about those a bit today. So basically you had uh, is it decks, which were almost all the is it decks were turns focused. So they didn't have any gold span dragons in the main, except for one, which won the tournament. Uh, then there was a Grixis style of deck, which was trying to do a similar thing, but use Leer and Duress and a little bit different removal to answer the green decks and use Duress plus Leer as like a way to like maybe win the mirror and then use Leer to beat uh, the green decks and the white decks. And basically you're trying to be kind of this controlling deck. And then we had white uh, be the you know, kind of an aggro deck and green be the mid-range deck of choice. Um, and I think we should start with green because our former world champion played it and it didn't do that well. Uh, and it is a mid-range deck. And so I, I think that's kind of an important thing to kind of talk about here. And I'm curious, like, do we all agree that like green is a mid-range deck, even though it gets called like mono green, which I think a lot of people like think of as a beatdown deck traditionally even though this deck is fairly aggressive. Is that something that we all kind of agree on here? Oh, this... Yeah, this... I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I think... Um, I forget who said it, but uh, one of the Japanese players, Emmer, tweeted that they said that, like, in their testing, they, like, referred to Mono Green as, like, the Abzan aggro of uh, of the format, which I thought was such an apt description of what the deck is. You know, it's a... 
uh, for those not familiar, the Abs and Aggro deck of old was this, uh, you know, Siege Rhino, um, Fleece Man Lion, Dromoka's Command, Gideon, like, mid-range beatdown deck that was just about putting a lot of good rate creatures in play and making good combats happen. And that's really what Mono Green's trying to do, right? It's it's about uh, putting a lot of stats into play for as little mana as you can, and they all have, you know, either abilities you tie up your mana for, um, or that, like, net you some cards, and you're really trying to, like, uh, play to the battlefield as much as you can uh, and control it that way through combat, which is uh, which is definitely more of a mid-range thing than, like, your traditional, like, Ember Cleave mono-red deck, or even the, the mono-green aggressive deck prior, where you were just, like, I'm casting my big things and attacking every turn, and I need to need to end the game. It does have a bit of grind to it with uh, with those things. Yeah, I, I think that, like, when I look at this deck, it reminds me of... It, it's funny, because I, I don't know how much the deck actually changed after this. And the, for historical listeners, like, if you look up kind of the Bloodbraid Elf, Jun, Sprawling, Thranax, Putrid Leech decks, it, this deck reminds me of that a lot, but it's single-colored. The thing is that mana was really good back then. So, like, you know, playing Jun was free. Like, you, you did, it, it didn't cost you anything. It, just, like, playing Mono Green cost you nothing in these snow decks. The, the thing is, is, like, if you look at the cards that you're playing... You know, you've got your your mana cards. You know, you got your Sculptor of Winters. You've got your Rangers class for your two for ones. But you're expecting a lot of two for ones out of this deck. Uh, I I actually was doing doing some looking at this. I I think that for the cards you're expecting two for ones from are Werewolf Pack Leader, uh, Rangers class, Renin Six. Uh, on in all honesty, I think that you could almost consider Inscription of Abundance a two for one in a lot of situations. Asika's Chariot, uh, or did I say Ren and Six? I meant Ren and Seven. Like, the, the deck generates a lot of... I don't even know if it's simulated card advantage for a lot of these, right? Like, but you very much are trying to be the beatdown while generating value. And this is something that, historically in Magic, whether it is, you know, these these Abzan decks from the Dragons of Gartier standard whether it's these Jun decks from Alara Standard, or I think even more recently, um, like some of the the Naya decks that that we saw, like the the uh, the I just said miracles in my head. That is not the word that I'm looking for. But the adventures decks, right? Like they're just these aggressive mid range decks generating value every turn. That is what this deck is trying to do, and. What's funny is, like, a year ago, these decks all played one-drops, right? Like, whether it's, uh, you know, Stone Coil, Serpent, and Innkeeper, because, you know, you have the Adventures package. Now it's like, okay, well, our one-drops are like, is it... What's the name of the card? Is it Shambling? They're all unplayable. We yeah, they're just yeah. all bad. I, I actually tried... Bad. I actually tried all of them for what it's worth. Like, I tried the Mushroom that flips into, like, a 3-3. I tried, like... A, like, they're all bad. And because of that, it really changes the dynamic of this deck, right? Like, the best one-drop for this deck is a 1-2 that taps <laughs> to another creature. And it's so bad in this deck to, like, take a turn off of attacking against decks that on turn 7, like, basically win the game. And it really puts yeah. this... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think you actually transition. Well, so I was going to say, this is one of the things we talked about during the Always Improving segment, right? It's like, think about the card contextually, right? Are we going to play this 1-2 so we can play our aggressively costed 2-drop so we can ramp into our 
three drop that we have a couple fours it's like not a thing our deck's trying to do and like the deck just has no ones that are able to do that and the deck is like they all said there it is a aggressively slanted mid-range deck that has a lot of card advantage a lot of grind potential and basically never stumbles the strength of this deck over a deck like is it which we'll get to here in just one second so i'm sure everyone wants to hear more about is it they haven't heard enough of it uh is that this deck doesn't stumble this deck all of its hands do a very similar thing and all of its draws do a very similar thing and they're very good at doing that and they're very resilient and so doing that sort of thing is why this deck actually does succeed it's funny we mentioned earlier how this deck didn't do very well at worlds uh, PV had a bad record. Sam, uh, so sorry, Seth Manfred had a bad record. But Sam Party actually lost three winning ins for top four in a row. So, it, you know, it's one of those things, too, where it's like, didn't have a great weekend. There's like three different alternate universes where Party is in top four. And even if Party loses, the narrative's way different around Mono Green. And we saw friend of the show, Will Pulliam, actually dominate. I believe going almost undefeated, just like conceded one round of the SCG to go get food. And dominated that the same weekend so i, I do actually believe by the way that sam party's list is the exact same as pv's yeah they work together for the program. yeah uh yeah and so those two worked you know and they had a very good deck list and so i i think there's a lot to be said about Mono green and you know going forward i don't think you can discount this deck because it will always litmus test you and is as long as we have something like epiphany that is making it very hard to be a bigger mid-range deck it's very hard for anything to really hate out Mono Green uh, in full. And so I think we're seeing that. Let's talk about the Is It decks here because these are so important. I think we should probably talk about the one that didn't win the tournament first and then kind of talk about why we like the Dragons one. Because when we, you know, we took a week off of the show because of some health and life stuff. Uh, but when we last talked to y'all, we talked about how we really liked the Dragons in the turns decks. They gave you a lot of game against things like Mono Green and Mono White and Gicks where you have to actually win the game. Uh, and then in the mirrors, it can be a little clunky at times, but it actually does win and makes it so much less about test of talents and things of that nature, which are kind of the natural es- evolution and escalation of these uh, turns mirrors. But the turns deck, you know, in that time we, where we didn't record, really became kind of the narrative about, you know, current magic that, hey, like this fork plus time walk thing is almost unbeatable. Like it goes over the top of everyone. We can do things like, play a seven mana unsummon all non-land permanence card as a way to answer these aggro decks. And we can we can work and we can find ways to beat these sort of things and we're getting better and better for the mirror because nothing can beat us. And it turns out maybe that isn't true, Spencer. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, so, I, so I think that this the, the problem with this deck is actually summed up by other decks in this tournament. Um, I think one of them took... It, they only four sixed this event, but it is the more the blue white tempo deck, um, really similar to a deck that uh, Mason and I kind of championed on different levels of like these, basically like these decks that just play a lot of tempo cards and then try to win in other ways. The blue white version I think did bad because I think he actually played against all three mono green players and lost to all three of them <laughs> but but it's i think the, the metagame decks yeah i i think i think the point stands that like the the thing is is uh, andre strosky i think that there's three of them right it's andre strosky sato i think there's another maybe there's four of them or all four of them do, oh sifka either, either way the these these players that brought this list it clearly 
came out going into Sunday, people believed this was the best deck in the tournament. Also, I think going into the event, people believed this was the best deck in the tournament. That didn't turn out to be true. Grixis definitely was the best deck in the tournament. The problem with this deck specifically, in my opinion, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, because I have actually not played with this deck. I played against it a ton. Um, I think I think the problem is is like if you're going to do the dragon stuff after board, why not just do the dragon stuff? Like what 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 actual value do you get by being a a turns deck? And and maybe that's because people decided to play Grixis and they just like dumpstered all over this for the mirror. But like, at what point do you just say, all right, if you're gonna play Duress, I'm just gonna play Smoldering Egg? Because once again, I said this on the podcast two weeks ago, I've literally never lost a game after flipping a Smoldering. It's just actually never happened. It, I actually wonder if it's impossible. Um, I, I gotta stop us here. Do you think Grixis is the best deck from this tournament? Oh, absolutely not. I think Dragons oh, is that, the best deck from this tournament. Said. I think that that is the narrative that is being given on Twitter and on Magic uh, Podcasts. I think Dragons is the best deck from this okay. tournament. I misheard you then. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to keep it a buck. I think that Grix deck unplayable. Okay. I, I, th- I think that deck <laughs> is really it, bad. It had the best results form. in standard for this tournament, but I... Sure. That's <laughs> just factually true. I'm just looking at that. I'm not. I'm not doubting it. I, I'm just. I'm. I'm laying my stance. We know that 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 can be true. And I'm looking at the the stats right now. It's a very good performance. That deck has some pretty big problems. Oh, I agree. I I think that anytime you're gonna main deck. Yes, I agree. You're gonna have a lot of issues. A hundred percent. First of all, I think that the same thing is true that we said two weeks ago. If I play this deck, I'm going to lose to Mono White. That's just going to happen. It was already true with Dragons. I think that it's. It's a bigger problem with this. So if I'm going to lose to Grixis in the quote-unquote mirror, I'm going to lose to Mono White, and then for some reason, I didn't look at the numbers, but didn't Mono Green like have a pretty good matchup against this deck after board or something? I don't remember whose tweet I saw that said that. But like, at what point are you just going to admit that maybe, maybe the <laughs> maybe the two-color taking turns deck is a little overrated? And you should just be doing, like, the medium stuff all along. I don't know. That's my opinion. I, I'd love to hear from you, though, Mason. I'd love to hear from Abe. Cause... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's hard because it's such a small field tournament. And there's so much of, like, this game around what is that weekend's metagame going to look like. And I think that, you know, if you're looking at just the turns deck, it's hard for me to say that, like the uh, checkhouse turns deck was not the best composed like deck list in the in the tournament. I think the problem was that it was kind of and maybe not even a problem, but uh, you know that doesn't mean it's the best deck in the entire format. That doesn't mean it's you know just like the format solved or anything. It just means that if you're looking to optimize what was I think the best archetype coming into the weekend, um, you know, it, assuming it could uh, take the the kind of unfavorable matchup for the uh, against the aggressive decks that the turns deck and dragons deck was having and turn it a little bit more favorable, which I think it did. Um, is that true? What was actually the mono white record against the check deck? Uh, do we, do we, mono white is, it's only like, what I've heard from players and testing and like a friend of the show, Brittany, how called the SCG, they, a lot of them feel like it's 50, 50 against, is it? And you kind of okay. have your spike cards, like redain the lead spellbinder and you have your gotcha draws. 
but they have cards that are good against you. But your real draw is that you just absolutely clown the green deck. Okay. Yeah. Which is which has been true in my experience. I, I have just had that, a lot of issues actually overcoming the white deck. I have it's, not yeah, I, mean, I have not been able to beat the turns deck with green. I've been able to beat the dragon jar green, so that actually tracks for me. So if you uh if you look at you know what really happened there, which is uh you know, the deck lists are due on Sunday night. The only real big format data we get anymore because of the, the online era is these SUGs. You know, Simon Nielsen won the SUG with mono green pretty handily. Uh, there was a ton of monogreen all over the top eight. So, you know, the narrative coming out of that event, the last thing you get to see before your deck list is due, if you're a player playing that event, is monogreen is is the, the deck winning the fields. So you have to decide, am I on team, you know, monogreen is the deck to play? Do I think I can build Epiphany right so that I can beat monogreen and other people are going to play it? Or do I want to, like, split against both of those things? Um, do I, that's like, it's kind of this leveling game of, like, do I try to beat the deck that was the, the best deck just now? Do I try to beat the deck that I think people are trying to work on the most, which is the Epiphany deck, uh, or do I, you know, try to try to beat both? And I think the Grixis deck was was in the spot of beating both, but uh, you know, it, it's such a small metagame that to say like Green got dogged, it's not that good, isn't at all true because Green, you know, like you said, like won the SUG again this week, very strong deck in a very open field, but in a small field that's very condensed, uh, you know, things things can just be weird like that. I think that, you know, this especially shows in Yusutaki Hashi's winning deck where he didn't drop a match uh, in standard where he had the dragons in the main deck, but all of the Epiphany players were really caught up in fighting over the Epiphanies. They thought the iteration Epiphany Shell was the one you needed to have to beat Mono Green. Uh, Yuta showed up with these Goldspan dragons and Smoldering Eggs that are very, very good in the mirror matches and was really rewarded for it because uh, he was not playing into the dynamic of, like, Leer being a card that was turned on, which was a card that the Grixis decks and some of the blue-red builds turn to um, to, to handle the creature decks. Um, you know, there's not as many disdainful strokes, way more test of talents. So, you know, things just kind of came together right for him. And, uh, yeah, so, so I think that, like, if you're looking at Epiphany, the best-built one, and, and probably a list that still holds as, as the, like, coming out of it, this is just the best iteration Epiphany deck, unless things change um, around it, is that check house epiphany deck but uh you know, it, you got to remember that the tournament is so small and is this special glimpse into this like you know six hour window after all the information's out and before deck lists are due into what those pros are thinking and what they're hedging on um not necessarily an indictment or uh you know a, a display of the format as a whole i thought i was so smart for putting teachings of archaic archaics or whatever in my delver deck i was like man nobody else is doing this i'm so smart it was like literally four days later. Everybody was. <laughs> I remember in testing, I had a game where I like f I used the uh, Galvanic iteration to like copy that down. I copied it down four cards, so I drew three, then drew two. That was pretty nice. No one's ever seen the card do anything. Yeah. A bit of a a bit of a drosker. Yeah. No. I. You know. I think. Um, the is it decks are obviously like. The, the top end of the format, right? And one of the kind of the balancing acts going forward, if you're playing, you know, maybe a local thing or a moto challenge or arena ladder or the invitational is kind of figuring out like, hey, how am I going to position myself? Am I going to be playing these like main deck test of talents so I'm like ready for the mirrors? Or am I going to be like playing disdainful strokes? How hard am I going to hedge for these things versus something like green as well? Like, how am I going to position myself in my deck and how 
big do I want to get in this arms race? Because if you get too big, your other matchups get so much worse uh, a lot of the time. And that is a real, real cost um, to these sort of decks. We kind of mentioned it a little bit uh, before this and kind of threw it to Abe when talking about this stuff. But Grixis specifically, um, you know, Abe said it was like built to be blue, red and built to be mono green. And while I do think it has draws that can do both of those things, and there's some benefit to playing a deck like that, I think the current configurations are not good enough at doing either one consistently enough uh, for my liking in an open field. And I think things like mono white are going to take up in popularity as green continues to kind of sort of be this thing. And players are scared of Alaron's Epiphany getting banned. You know, there, there's a financial cost to these sort of things. And so I don't know how y'all feel, but I am really low on the current Grixis decks and think they need to do a lot to fix and change their stuff because I'm unsure why the Grixis deck is the deck to play Liren and not blue red. It's just like Liren the sideboard. So I'm those mine. So I, I actually have an opinion on this and I actually think that it's, it's, um, Oh my gosh. Test of talents is not the name of that card. What in the world just happened in my head? Uh, I actually think the, the answer to this question, um, it was really clear to me after I played Takahashi's list this week. Um, and, and that's actually divide by zero. Like the Grixis decks don't play divide by zero. And because they don't do that, and their their card, their actual mana cost is actually lower overall because of that. They then get to play the uh, is it Lear? How do you say it? Because I've heard it three different ways. I just say Lear. Okay, that's how I've heard it too. But but like that card is not good with divide by zero for what it's worth because you actually can't play enough uh, cards to get with your divide by zero. To flash it back a bunch of time, to flash it back, the additional copies flash them back. Like if you look at the the winning deck list, there are exactly I believe three, uh, uh, learn card or lesson cards. And I believe that the blue red versions play four. They play the exact same three with an additional the card we just mentioned. And I already have had games where. Like, if I had ever flashed one back, I would not have had enough. But you can just loot. Oh, you can loot. Yeah, That's no, why you were rolling your eyes my... at me my entire time and didn't interrupt yeah. me. Yeah, I, I was just like, I was like, there's got to be more. But but also... No, I, I no, no, there's not more. I, I, your mana cost does go up. Like, unequivocally, yeah. that's true. Well, so... This is so... I, I'm going to leak a little testing here, whatever. I, I, I think that doesn't have to be true. So I, I believe mm. Fading Hope is good enough at being your answer spell against a lot of these decks. But so you can play Fading Hope to like answer Old Ghost Troll, Seekers Chariot, Ren Sevens, in the place of that two mana spells, and you still have the Divide by Zeros, and then Fading Hope and Divide by Zero actually also serve as a package to protect your Leer, which will get you into the late game. And so what you do is you kind of play those sort of things post-board against green decks, as an answer to these problems. And then if you divide by zero in the late game, uh, I think just putting their thing back typically will be enough and you can loot. And, you know, we don't, there are the good lessons we can have, but we also get all those lessons back again. So I sure. think we'll be fine. And that sort of stuff. What you just said, uh, one of our, one of our points in our show notes is like, what are the biggest lessons you learned from the deck lists? F Fading hope is actually my biggest lesson learned. This was the thing I was going to talk about is like, I was so wrong about that card two weeks ago on the show. I've played it a ton since then. The car that card belongs in any deck that can play it that like it is beneficial for. 
it, it was funny because like when I said that, Mason was like, I, I don't know, have you like played it? I was like, you know, I played it a little, but like I've I've probably cast that card a hundred plus times since then. F- Fading Hope is the real deal. Uh, the fact that like it deals with the Wolf Token right after a Ranger's class. The fact that it deals like the troll you just mentioned, the like the yeah the like green 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 is really expensive. Like that is so much mana. Uh, I I was wrong. Like I was just straight up wrong about Fading Hope. Yeah, I had Fading Hope and Demon Bolts. You know, a lot of this is really funny to me. Like I built a deck that had kind of the right removal package a while ago with like this. Uh, the beat the cherry deck, as I call it, where like you play like this Delver style of game plan, where you have Demon Bolt and Fading Hopes and divide by zero. And I really do think if you put that sort of package in a turns deck or a Dragon's turns deck, and you just kind of scale up for how the metagames evolve since week one, you actually have like a very good suite of removal and answers for what's going on in the current metagame. Um, by like yeah. a pretty good margin. I also think that uh, it's pretty important to note that the um... Those spells, Demon Bolt and Fading Hope, play particularly well in the uh, Galvanic Iteration shells as being cheap spells that turn your iterations on early. Like, there was a lot of games we played in testing where, uh, like, you were playing Monogreen and I was playing turns. And if I went, like, turn two for Tell Demon Bolt, turn three, Iteration Demon Bolt, both of your creatures, it put you so far behind. In a similar way, you know, a lot of the creatures in Monogreen, they're big, but they're slow, big, beefy creatures. You are just paying mana for stats that leaves something behind or you're making tokens and stuff. And so that investment, that time is really what the turns deck needs before it can get to its inevitability of like copying Alrin's epiphanies and going off. Um, so that was really important. I think that like, for me, that was kind of, you know, a really big takeaway for the deck list is that like time was really important in, in this, in this small metagame and uh, fading hope was, was definitely emblematic of that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you don't, have to permanently answer everything all the time and fading hope really does exemplify that and allows you to kind of cheat on lands a little bit too not much but you do get a little a little scry a little selection which i can think to be little taste important. yeah i i think we should probably mention mono white real quick here before we kind of get into the things outside of the actual decks um deck did not do super great you know uh saito <laughs> and uh ikawa both came in there in a, in a 50% win percentage, Mason. Yeah, which was just, like, good, but not great, right? Like, <laughs> It's super funny to me. Yeah, I mean, especially, like, I thought that the Mono White deck had a really good matchup against the Turns deck. I was, like, that was the deck I was afraid of with all my Dragons decks, my Turns decks. Um, I thought it, like, probably was decent against Mono Green, uh, if, you, if you built it right. And then to see it kind of be a flop, I thought that that would be the choice that would be a breakout yeah, breakout deck for the tournament. I think a lot of people said that because there was this big narrative about Epiphany being too good. Um, and people saying, well, you know, you can combat it by staying lower to the ground. Um, and it didn't really happen that way. I thought that was really surprising. Fun fact. Yeah. I have an opinion on this. I think that you should be doing something... I I obviously have been championing this mono-white deck, and I'm going to do it again right here on this podcast. If you want a mono-white list that will win you games against Epiphany on Ladder... It is in our Discord. I, I like straight up. I literally have had patrons, former patrons, message me like, "Is this really that good? Is this Planeswalker that good? Is this card?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's way better than the stinking familiar that these guys are like." I, I promise you that you can beat this deck. You just have to play some enchantments. You have to like 
This is so like this is these lists are like almost twenty cards off from the list that I've been promoting. And I nothing against these guys. These guys are far better magic players than me. I do believe I do believe fully. I mean, we talked about this deck two weeks ago, and we talked about uh is it Paladin class? The one man like if you don't have Paladin class in your deck, you're giving up insane equity against the blue red decks. Like just you're you're giving them so much extra time. So I, I actually really hate the way these mono wide decks were built. I, I actually I I think it's Yeah, I would I would love to be able to pick like the the brains of uh of the players who brought it to see like how they arrived at some of these numbers. Like their one drop suite is obviously, you know, interesting. Uh the choice of main deck portable hole is interesting. I mean Ray Saito um, is but... like historically one of the greatest deck builders and like magic players of all time, right? So like I am clearly not saying I'm better than him. I'm just saying that I, I do believe. Yeah, I, I just wonder what the what yeah. their picture of the metagame in, the, in their mind is, right? Because yeah. you can clearly pick out. I want to beat Epiphany. I want to have yeah. these cards to handle it. That's the approach I want to take. I just wonder what uh what their approach was, and and it was pretty shocking to me that the mono white deck just didn't didn't perform, you know, better than than. I, I think that they valued Elite Spellbinder super high in this format, right? Like. You know, one of the things that if if you followed us in the Discord, uh, and and Mason, feel free to chime in. Like, I you guys are actually the ones that talked me off of Elite Spellbinder. That like I didn't need it because I was playing those Paladin classes, and I moved those Elite Spellbinders forward. Both of these lists, I I wonder if they're on the same team, but like they're both playing four Elite Spellbinder in the main deck. And they Elite Spellbinder, what's that? Their, their decks are identical. Okay, that's what I thought. So I, I think Elite Spellbinder is in an interesting position where like it's really good against the the blue green the blue red decks, but man, that card is so bad against like mono green that it's uh, insane. Yeah, it's uh I think when you have Paladin class, that card those two cards compete for a lot of the same slots, and then this one is like a higher mana cost, like Elite Spellbinder, so it becomes kind of awkward to play. While Elite Spellbinder uh, in this sort of deck, you don't have Paladin class, so you kind of have to load up on them. My read from looking at this deck is I think they thought that Mono White and Mono Green were going to be uh, slightly bigger portions of the metagame. And my assumption from that is cards like Three Faithful Absence, Two Portable Hole. Portable Hole is not good against the Mono Green deck or the Blue Red deck outside of Egg and I guess like Rangers class. I guess where the Werewolf gets outsized really quickly. Um, in this sort of matchup where it's kind of gets traded off. So I, I think that they kind of thought like, hey, other people are going to come to this sort of deck, um, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, we need to be sort of prepared for that. And I, I think you can see that in cards like having three Adeline in your deck is really respectful for like the mirror and stuff like that, or that card's really good. And it's really respectful for green or that card's really good. Adeline on, on the play against a green deck is backbreaking. It is a very, very strong card. Um and they just have three of that, and it is not that great against the mono red. I'm sorry, the blue red decks. So, I, when looking at these deck lists, I think they maybe thought the metagame would look a little different. They even have like cards in their sideboard that seem to want to like sure up those matchups more and less for the epiphany. So I'm unsure if maybe they thought their matchup was better or they thought a lot that like because I believe that uh, they 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 have cur- they have curse of silence in the place that I had. 
that I have uh, Elite Spellbinder, right? So, like, they're clearly thinking that that they can board in Curse of Silence against Epiphany ra- rather than the reverse, right? So I completely agree with you, Mason. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot, a lot of interesting things going on. I, I think this deck might actually be better for, like, a, an IRL tournament metagame where there are cost considerations for things. Like, it, the like people will do their best to get the deck they can, but they will not always succeed. And when cards like Goldspan Dragon are $200, I think that we're going to see maybe a little less of this deck than we should. And I bet, like, if you did a poll for... Let's just use the Stars to Games Invitational since it's the only standard tournament that looks like we're having. There might be an energy that has, like, a standard side event. But basically, I wonder if I pulled everyone in the room, hey, if I gave you infinite money, what deck would you play? I imagine more than some of them would say, or more than, like, a small amount of them would say, I would play the blue-red deck. But it was too expensive. There was too much fear yeah. of bannings. And this deck is really, really good. Like, the white deck at beating green, at beating the decks that try to, like, the blue-white control deck, this deck just demolishes and like we said earlier i think it is true i think at worst like whether you play paladin class like spencer is where you load up on redains and spellbinder like these people are i think you can get the is it players a fair bit of the time i, I, I think, think it's so like too. 50 50 at worst for, so. for for what it's worth for what you just said mason i i uh we have this sweet sweet sponsor they are oasis games you can check them out at mtgoasis.com i i actually am buying this deck in paper to play on on Wednesday nights at Oasis Games. Not Word. this list. You can find my list in the Discord. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I you know, that's a great way to help. There you go. Boom. Get that for the invitational. Or now you get your cards in time. I have my deck coming from them in the mail right now. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that's going to kind of do us on the big decks there and some of our thoughts on the decks from the metagame. Abe, did you have anything you wanted to say about Mono White? Uh, you know, Spencer and I kind of bounce back here. We've both been playing a lot of Mono White. I know, I don't think you've played a lot of it. Do you have any thoughts? about the deck in general though that kind of differ from what we were saying no nothing outside of the surprise that it that it underperformed my expectation i really thought based on my experiences the mono white deck would would perform really well in that field and it just didn't so you know fair well we you know we kind of talked a little bit about some of the stuff we've learned from the deck list here uh did anything surprise you all kind of in the same vein that you know abe mentioned how he really expected white to do well and you know it did have a 50 50 uh win percentage which isn't terrible but not you know kind of what we were expecting was there anything sensor specifically for you that kind of was i'm so sorry surprising for you at this tournament yeah actually um i i was pretty surprised by four rangers class in the teamer deck so so i had so for those who don't know like i'm obviously always going to be the guy that's going to try like the the teamer and the naya and the jundex right like those those are just like the things i like to do in magic one of the things that surprised me, though, is, like, I don't know if that it surprised me as much as, like, John, John, uh, John Emmanuel really got what I was thinking about this format. Like, where it's like, okay, this format is about these specific things. And I, I'm actually a little surprised he lost this event, especially in the manner in which he did, which we'll get into later. Or maybe we won't. I'm, I'm not sure where we'll end up on the show notes, but, like... It, it is very clear that despite the the poo-pooing on Sentinel into uh, uh, Outlaw, that there's something real there. Like, the, the, it definitely is. Um, and I think that he ended up at a conclusion that I probably should have ended up on earlier. 
I personally, when I see those two cards, I want to play Showdown on the Skulls. Like, that's that's where I want to be with those cards. I want to use all of them mana every turn. I want to, like, go ham. And he's like, you know what? Maybe just leave mana up for Negate and Disdainful Stroke and just, like, you just play a Gruul deck that, like, it beats down. And his list is so clean that, like, it looks like one of those lists that, like, somebody comes up with week one. But it's so funny because, like, he's specifically attacking uh, specific things. And I, I really love that. Like, I'm the type of guy that immediately cuts uh, an outlaw for some spell that I want an extra copy of or, like, stuff like that. And he didn't do that. Like, he he very clearly knew what he wanted. And I, I really respect that. And it it I don't know if you guys watched as much of the coverage as I did, but, like, this dude crushed it. Like, just absolutely knew what he wanted. Um, I, I was impressed. I was impressed with the number of Ranger class. I was impressed with just his overall... Uh, I think he had a turn where he activated his Outlaw to get a Goldspan Dragon one turn. Like, this is something that I've done in Naya a couple of times, where you're like, your opponent just, like, forgets that that's a mode on that card. Uh, I, I was really impressed. So... Yeah, and I think what you said about uh, this deck looking like a deck you play week one, and then, like, you know, it, it, I think it literally was the deck that, like, did... It was one of the decks... It's like, that identical, it, um, almost, to the deck that won the, week one. The standard one. challenge in week one. Yeah. yeah but, but I think there's a lot of note about this. Like, it really adopts what is good about the core of the Gruul package. Uh, you know, even looking at the sideboard, it can go up to, like, this kind of werewolves, aggressive draw of these Kassig naturalists. And uh, like the full four storm seekers and bribery trackers in some matchups, um, you know it, it can kind of like just shift the way it's presenting its threats. Um, yeah, I I think it is kind of funny that it is just like yeah, this deck obviously had chops in week one. Where did it go? And where it went was to the finals of worlds. So I'm trying to think about things that I learned about you know besides. Uh, boarding out, burn down the house is always wrong, or anything along that sort of That's line. a different segment in the show notes, um, Mason. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm speaking in the abstract, of course. Um, sheesh! You know, I would say a lot of this was affirming for yeah. me in a lot of ways on things that happened. There were a lot of things where I kind of thought stuff um, and, like, had opinions on Demon Bull and Fading Hope and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, in in particular, like for my article, the week of worlds, I put is it dragons as the S tier or the A tier, whatever it was, you know, version of the is it deck to be playing going forward in that weekend. And uh, much like last time I did this with the goblins, I got a lot of pushback from people saying that oh, the turns deck is way better, way better. And while it is results oriented, you know, Utah did win the tournament, not losing a game in standard. So I think there's something to the dragons deck. I Actually, I, I think people are, are just too quick to kind of write off having a mid-range game plan. And what I mentioned last time on the show of actually winning a game on that. I actually, I'm just going to take a moment. Uh, this is not, Mason did not pay me to say this or anything. I tweeted this like before I rejoined the show that Mason has been like in my top three favorite writers uh, in the last couple of years. And I actually did read that article and I actually was following the tournament closely because of that. I, I, I think that, I think that too often we, as Magic players, and I know that people say this all the time, but I don't think we actually take it to heart that we try to get too cute, we try to get too smart, and the truth is, is like, two weeks ago I said, I literally can't lose a game when I flip Smoldering Egg. Fun fact, 
every time Smoldering Egg flipped on camera, it won this weekend. Like, at some point, you just have to admit, like, okay, is the problem Moonvale Regent? Is that Regent? Moonvale Dragon Regent thing? Is the problem the five... Like, what is the actual problem? Because if I'm winning every game... Uh, also, fun fact, I was wrong about another card that Abe was right about, which is freaking dig through time with flashback. What in the world is happening here? Like, what is happening? Like, that we just, we, I, dude, I, I know, I saw that. <laughs> like, at some point, we just have to admit that we get too cute. We, we have to be the smartest person in the room, and you don't, you don't have to do that. You just have to win the match in front of you. Just win the match in front of you. It's all you have to do. Mason, I love your article. My point is, is like... Did Patrick Sullivan doing a pitch on... I actually didn't watch it. I haven't watched it yet. I feel guilty. The video's very good. I I spent $20 to get this. I know. I I know. I had a rough rough weekend. No, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, I was hoping it would help push the needle a little bit, slash it was, you know... I mean, I'm sure it did. I don't know what your numbers came back as, but... Uh, they didn't help that much, uh, but it, it was worth it, and half the money went to a good cause. So can we can we talk <laughs> can we talk about your sideboarding comment though? Because um, I, I think that we can combine two things. The, the two of our next points are the sideboarding conversation and watching to learn. And I want to start with watching to learn. I put these in the wrong order. I think that while it's it's funny to like dunk on people on Twitter or, or whatever, I I think that what's really important is like. Why are you watching Worlds? Are you watching it because you enjoy watching Magic? I I actually do enjoy watching Magic. Magic. I know that I'm like in the minority on that and stuff, but I actually usually am watching Magic to learn. Uh, I had I had a moment where my team had a uh, an SCG uh, feature match where we, we had a player board a specific way. And just a really popular SCG player who I think kind of sucks, uh, you know, tweeted about us and just our just team. Say it's Abe already, man. No, it's just, not Abe. It's a lot of attention. Uh, they don't. Play, I, don't, I actually don't need to play Magic anymore. But uh, like, just blew just up, me, blew up our team, <laughs> blew up our team. And the thing is, is we won that match because of that board plan. Like, and, and the thing is, is like at some point. You have to, like, take the opportunity to, even if you don't agree at the end, even at the end of the day, you don't agree with the thing the player is doing. If you take a moment instead to ask yourself why, instead of sending a tweet or instead of, you know, blasting them in your Discord or in your Facebook group or wherever you're doing it, just take a moment to say, why did this person do it? You will, like... You will improve so much more. And the truth is, is like, I've done this. I actually uh, have a history of commenting on Mike Flores articles on Star City Games where I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, what you're saying isn't even true about the format. I said terrible, horrible things to Mike Flores on his articles. I'm ashamed of it. At some point, you just have to admit that... Taking an opportunity to learn is better than taking an opportunity to duck on somebody. That being said, there were a lot of interesting sideboarding decisions. I, the one I want to comment is actually on the finals, where they boarded out Elrond's Epiphany against the Teamer deck. Yeah, I think that's right for its worth. I also think it's right, but like it was mentioned 32 times. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you got, you got to have some talking points. You know, you got a best of three, two out of three, two out of three, whatever it is, you know, like, uh, you why, do, why do you think it's right though? Like help the listeners understand why you agree with that. So basically the assumption is that like your opponent is like, so like, if you look at uh gentleman of the cross's deck, um, he has main deck negate. So he's come, he's coming prepared. And then post board, he has disdainful stroke for you. And um, you could argue maybe like, you know, Tangle Trap probably comes in that matchup. Uh, he did bring it in in that matchup for his worth in the postboard games. And so he's going to have uh, a lot of cards that are trying I, I to assume he brought in those uh, Reckless Storm Seekers, too, for what it's worth. Yeah, I mean, probably did. got to get the beats on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. He, had some, he had some dead cards in my deck. No, but he's going to have a lot of cards that are for answering your bigger cards, right? Like the Tangle Trap's going to answer the dragon's. And the disable stroke trains the dragons and the owl runs. And you can only do so much when you're uh, Utah to actually change your deck, in my opinion. And so you have to do what you can. And so what Utah's decided to do is like, hey, I'm going to board out these really clunky owl runs epiphanies. I can't unfortunately board out the dragons as well and completely juke these sideboard cards. But instead, I'm going to try to either slam a dragon when it's safe, like if they tap out for something on turn four and maybe I counter it or it just doesn't matter and slam a dragon, or I'm going to wait, set up counter plus threat, and then kind of go for it. And it's much easier to do the latter where you're setting up these things when your deck is less of these things that actually end the game, these threats and are more answers. And so Yudo is just trying to trade off cards, get to a point where, you know, Hey, I'm playing a Delver game plan. I've got this gold span dragon. I've got some answer spells and that's it. So I, I don't know. Abe, how do, how do you feel about it? Because you've been, I mean, like call a spade a spade. Abe's been playing blue red a whole bunch. I've been playing mono green a bunch. Uh, we've both played the other decks as well a, a good bit, but what do you think about the plan? Do you agree with Alrin's Epiphany coming out? Yeah, I think specifically against this like wet gruel strategy, this this teamer deck. Um, you know, the moist, you don't want moist to... gruel. You got to call it the right name. No, it's wet. It's full on wet. There's counter spells in the main deck. That's wet. Water yeah, not wet. Main deck negate wet. Um, but yeah, so you know the reason your opponent's playing those counter spells is to trade on your biggest thing, like stopping you from epiphanying and, and taking over the game, you probably don't even have to go that far over the deck if that's their plan, because they're going to try to just deploy their small things, uh, line up their negates and disdainful strokes with your epiphanies, and uh, and keep you from pulling ahead, stay ahead with their cheaper cards. And all you're doing by leaving your epiphanies is playing into that game plan. If you, in the games where the game goes that long, you're so favored anyway, because their game plan is to try to kill you before you can even get to like the epiphany stage and stop you from like Hail Mary epiphanying you, uh, epiphanying them anyway. So, you know, why having a card that's just so far over what the game is about? Um, you know, as for why they mentioned it so much, uh, it, the deck's called Epiphany. You know, like, it, it is... Th that it one's is not, right? That one was clearly Dragons. Oh, yeah, well, you know, but but the talk is is still like, you know, Epiphany yeah. is the best card in the format. Epiphany is too good. How can you say it's the best card or it's so good when it's not even good in all the matchups? And the answer sure. is... You know, people are targeting it, and so you know, if your opponent, it's it's a good, simple like um, like building blocks lesson of sideboard for the games that you're going to play. You know, and and in the postboard games, your opponent's going to be targeting your epiphanies. Don't give them the opportunity. Play a game where you're going to one for one them with your burning hands and whatever. Use your smoldering eggs and goldspan dragons to to really seal the game, and they don't necessarily know that you're not going to have epiphanies, so they might still have to respect it with their counter magic and hold. So. Um, so yeah. I, I think though the single biggest thing that I learned from watching watching play, if we're talking about watching to learn, was there were so many times watching Strasky, who is one of the best magic players in the world, 
un, unequivocally. It is impossible to argue otherwise. He is just so good. Um, was he would cast divide by zero. And I'd be thinking, like, what am I trying to do here? You know, what less am I grabbing? And he would just rummage. He would be like, I am going to discard this land to draw a card because I, like, feel like if I high roll here, I, like, I was trying to break down, like, what is it he's looking for? I was like, you know, maybe he high rolls here. He gets an epiphany. His opponent just tapped out. He got this big mana leverage. Now he's trying trying to get ahead of it. And there were just simple things like that where it's like, why would he make this play? Why is he doing this? And, you know, when with understanding that thought process of how he's playing the deck, how he's winning so much with it, um, and and how, you know, the check house really came to determine why their build of uh, of the Epiphany deck is good was was really telling when he was like, you know, we are ultimately a combo deck. Sure, getting the lessons is really good. The fact that I can go up a card is good, but sometimes I don't need the card out of my sideboard. I need one of the cards in my deck. And that I, was like just something huge and eye-opening because I don't think about that. I, I try not, I try to just make my divide by zeros, you know, a, a bouncer thing, get up a card. Yeah. Um, and, instead of like, I have a question for, in the full context. for both of you because I think you're both playing more magic than me. When you look at like the Grixis deck versus the Shack deck, it actually feels like they had a really clear sideboard plan. Whereas like the Grixis deck was like pile of good card sideboard plan. Is that how you guys felt looking at them? Yeah, I think um, I I don't know how Abe feels about this exactly, but I know that I mentioned it earlier on the show that the plan for the Grixis deck stands be like I got a little bit of this for green, I got a little bit of this for is it, and I'll figure the rest out. Like you know, like that's kind of what they're doing, and their sideboard's very much like that stuff that I had for green. They giggity out, come on in some other stuff that's kind of the same, you know, and they're kind of like two halves of a deck that they try to make into like one good deck. And it's something that once again, like I mentioned earlier, I feel like is good for something like worlds, maybe worse for something like an open tournament. Abe, how do you feel about that statement slash? Do you disagree? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there were some really, really powerful hammers in, in the way that the, the game is supposed to play out in the sideboard for the Grixis deck. Like I know that we observed that like go blank plus iteration was like, God. if you, like, fork a go blank, <laughs> Epiphany just can't win. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> the, the game's done. Pack it in. It's just not happening. Like, that is so good. And also, like... Uh, the conversation of splashing go blank in the blue-red deck happened yeah. for, like, a hot second. Where yeah, it's like, yeah. can we just like, play this off of treasures? Good. Like, <laughs> yeah. Can we just do this? This is so strong. Um, and, you know, when your plans are that good, and I think another big impressive card from that Grixis deck was Celestis, where getting ahead of mana was really unpunishable almost, you know, like the, the mana rock was good and enabled them to play more of these black one drops, like uh, casting duress after casting it made it less punishing to tap out. Um, but also just the patterns of, of like uh, those mirrors letting you loot a lot more um, like off the Celestis was really good. So, you know, it was, I think Grixis was probably the worst built deck of the tournament. You know, it was the least cohesive, but also it had, you know, two, two, maybe three goals in mind of like, you know, I want to have a plan for beating decks that are like this, like Epiphany, and I want to have a plan for beating these. And I think it succeeded in that, but that does lend it to being a pile of cards. You know, as an archetype, we hadn't really seen at all in any any capacity. I hadn't seen anyone tweet about decks like it. I hadn't seen anybody, you know, play it in SCGs. It, it was really a novel idea. And for it to come together at, to, you know, a deck worthy of registering in worlds was was in and of itself impressive enough and the elements were there but it definitely wasn't refined it, it's one of those decks i think that people will look back on when there'll be some event on moto like play the world's Dutch in 2021 and they're gonna be like what were these idiots thinking you know or whatever and it's like 
this happens a lot like week one opens people are like they look back and like you played mono red week one that's unplayable and it's like well the deck was like actually got evolved to become unplayable and like it was kind of really good for that tournament and had a lot going for it there and this deck has that going on for it there and i don't think that it's not like the end of grixis i think there are definitely builds and things you can do to grixis to like make it move forward but i think the current configurations just aren't quite there for a much more open field which it wasn't built for i'm judging it on something that its goal wasn't done it did the cask it's a girl boss it's a queen it's an icon it's the moment and i'm putting it in an unfair box but uh that's also hey that's my job yeah i mean (laughs) if you look at it i feel like that grixis deck kind of has spawned a lot of the uh the interest in the blue black control decks that i've seen popping up over that that kind of happened in tan in tandem right with the scgs but seeing those world deck those world's deck lists kind of gives you the inspiration of oh well this like leer thing is really strong apparently like you know people are willing to kind of go out on a limb and, and build their deck around it so we should maybe it's worth exploring in, in a different shell without the stuff we don't like about the red the red cards so you know it's uh it wasn't the full it was like definitely a full base concept but it wasn't you know they didn't have the time to hash it out it seems like definitely a, a real brute yeah i agree um, is there anything else that we kind of want to go over here when it comes to sideboarding conversations? I feel like there was something, and now I've got the lights on me, and this is my moment. Eminem talked about it, and I'm just blowing it. But I can't remember what it was, so I don't want to uh, waste I, too much time here. I don't, I mean, I, I do remember there was a moment where it was questioned whether or not you should board in Goldspot Dragon versus uh, Burn Down. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. D- taking out Burn Down the House against Monogreen versus. Uh... I, I I actually so for what it's worth, I think that the important part of this conversation, regardless of what side you come down on, is actually just having a plan. This is something that we've talked about on the show. Like Michael Hinderacker beat this into the ground on the show. Um, as long as he was here, it's just like in all. And I actually thought about this this week after all of this happened. It's just like. At some point, it doesn't really matter what your sideboard plan is as long as you know what it is and you have a reason for it. Because you're going to play towards the thing that you have a reason for what you're doing. Because you have an understanding of what that is. At the at the end... Oh, go ahead, Mason. No, I'm just... I'm, amen. That's what I was saying. Like, at the end of the day, like if your plan is to just wipe their board and be the control deck, sure, Burn down the house is great in those moments. If your plan is to like specifically cast your freaking uh Alron's Epiphanies and just win with Dragon attacking two times, then that's better. Like it doesn't even matter what creatures they have on the board at that point. So it really comes down to like at the end of the day, and this is actually one of the, the topics that we have on our docket for like writing your own sideboard guides. At the end of the day, the important thing is knowing why you're doing what you're doing, not it, like because you're never going to be 100% right on what's best in a matchup. You're just not. You're not smart enough. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many matches of magic you play. You're just not going to be there. Instead, do what you believe is best because of the experience that you've had, the people you've talked to, the magic you've watched, and I, I think that that will solve a lot of problems for you, and you'll win more matches of Magic that way. Love it. Let's wrap this up with what we play here before we kind of get into our Patreon question start wrapping up the show here. Uh, you know, if you had a standard tournament, let's say, like, I don't know, some sort of 
big first tournament after a pandemic. Uh, or maybe no like an arena you. open or like. <laughs> yeah, uh... that's like this weekend. In <laughs> the Red Bulls also this weekend. There's like a bunch of standard tournaments going on. Like, Do we uh, think that there's a standard banning tomorrow? When, when no. I, I'm zero shot. My, my, my stance is this: is if you think if you're Watsy and you think there's anything in Crimson Vow that will move the needle, yeah, a good amount, you do nothing because as I've mentioned on the show a bunch here, we're 28 days from the new set. Let's <laughs> go, team! It. Let's go. I hate 28 it. Days. I. Uh, anyways, <laughs> you know, uh, we're right around the corner, and previews are going to start. And if if you actually think it'll move the needle, you shouldn't do it because. It will like get people excited or whatever. And if you don't think there is, you should definitely ban something with all runs epiphany, right? Because that will dominate like the conversation. So I'm under the assumption that I think they knew this. They put some cards in Crimson Val. Yeah. Uh, but I, I have no way to know for sure. I can call uh, Michael real quick if you want. But no, I, I think that we should uh, not call <laughs> Michael and ask him that question because we love Michael. We don't want to get him in trouble. I, I'll go first because I, my answer is only slightly different depending on if there's a ban tomorrow before this episode comes out. If Elrond's Epiphany is getting banned, I'm playing Naya sh- uh, Showdown. Like that, that is 100% the deck that I would immediately start working on. I think that specifically Felidar Retreat is something that, like, the second you don't have to worry about Epiphany, just breaks any green-red mirror wide open. I, I think that, I think that I would play Teamer still. Otherwise, I played a ton of Mono Green, and I, I think that Teamer. I, I actually do think the Outlaw plus Sentinel is actually so much better than everything Mono Green is doing. The second that you decide that you're going to play like a bunch of Rangers uh, class and like really use all of your mana, except for two. <laughs> that uh, and, and the other thing that I was thinking about in, in doing this is like if I'm going to play this many Rangers class, like I'd love to play Hermits like out of the board. So like I make sure that I'm disrupting my opponent on key turns like th- there was a lot of things that i thought that even though i loved his list i talked about on the show like i i would i would work on some teamer stuff abe i really like the dragons deck man I- i've said a lot of- we-, we did a whole episode on blue red and and there's just uh you know something about if i had played more competitive magic in the year 2008 i would have played fairies and that's all I have to say on the issue. I am a huge Yuta fan. I, I think he did great. I was really happy to see him win. And I, I think that, that maybe not exactly that 75 of uh, of Blue Red Dragons, but I think that, uh, you know, Goldspan Dragon, Alarun's Epiphany, Red Removal, Blue Counter Magic, it's hard to not like it for me. So, uh, so that's where I'd be at. Yeah, I think if there's a banning, I'm not playing Monogreen. I think there is a ban. I'm sorry. If there is a banning, I am not playing mono green. If there isn't, I am. It's basically where I'm at on it. I I think that the blue red deck is slightly more powerful than the mono green deck, but the mono green deck just doesn't stumble. And I put not stumbling at a very high premium. And I don't think that the blue red deck is even that much more insanely far ahead unless they inbreed for me. And you know what? If someone wants it more, then they want it more, maybe. That's just all that comes down to it. I've got extra snakeskin veils in my deck. They're going to have to really want it more than me because I'm kind of already going from them a little bit. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of where I'm at on things. But I actually think that the Modern Green deck is 
for it to be good in its current form, actually needs Alrins to be part of the metagame. Kind of like a, like a leech that's on a shark, you know, and like feeds off the things that goes by the shark. Like I need the shark to scare things away from me because there are a lot of things that just destroy Mono Green if, if you don't have that doing it for you. So uh, there is a banning tomorrow. I'm going to be very mad about like $200 for cards from Wasted Games. Luckily, I saved a bunch of money using codes, but <laughs> uh, we'll see. No bans. Also, man, this episode is going to be awkward if there's a bunch of bans. Anyways, let's move on to our Patreon question. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. You get part of the access at Discord. You get to see the deck looks like what to talk about. You're going to get to do something really cool that Spencer's going to talk about right now before we get into our Patreon question, which is a benefit of the show. Spencer, what's this cool thing I'm hyping up for real quick? Yeah, so I'm going to do a Discord contest. So you specifically need to be a patron of $5 or more uh, to enter the Discord. And then what we will be doing is everybody for Crimson Vow can enter a deck list uh for the contest we'll make a separate discord channel for this uh and then abe will pick his champion deck list mason will pick his champion deck list and then i'll pick the winning deck list and then we will round robin battle each other whether it's on stream or whether it's recorded uh and then the winner of those events will uh win at ccmtg care patch you'll get a play mat you'll win some oasis game store credit We'll kind of figure out what the exact prizes are um, in, in probably, you know, before the next month. Uh, it'll be announced in the Discord. So if you want to be a part of that, join the Discord, uh, which is $5 a month on Patreon. Awesome. Perfect. But like we said, uh, you have to ask the Patreon question, which is one of the cool benefits of being a patron on the show. We have an interesting one. This week says, how do you expect the meta change from Crimson Val comes out? And I have an answer for you. This is a great answer. Uh, I can't actually tell you it's in a time capsule and I have to see all the preview cards first. But if you listen to Constructed Criticism episode 393, should be the episode when it comes out, I will tell you the perfect card because I'm never wrong during a set review. Uh, but I don't want to ruin the surprise, so I'll let Abe and Spencer handle the, this, this question. So I, I don't know that I, I, I kind of agree with Mace. Like, I can't answer this question until I know the cards. But I have a hope. And that is that... We are no longer forced into snow aggro decks and we can play two color aggro decks in addition to snow aggro decks. I think that while it's really cool that we have Faithless Haven, uh, I, I would really like to see even like two color mid range decks. Like the mana is actually not that great in standard right now. Um, and I, I'd like to see that change. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, as they both said, you can't really know what's going to change until you know the cards, but I do have a couple hopes. I, I agree with the, uh, you know, maybe something that makes the man a little better, draws us away from from this trend of wanting to play Faceless Haven, which is kind of like, uh, you know, you just have to play a bunch of Snow Basics and, and play one color because you're playing a bunch of Snow Basics uh, to enable it. But, you know, maybe some... Um, some more one drops that are playable. Uh, I would like some more diversity too, because it feels like a lot of the cards in the format that are two mana really are very same note. They're very man like it's a lot of mana accelerants, a lot of Lotus Cobra, Prosperous Innkeeper, even the uh, the red black legendary creature from AFR, just like Enter's Battlefield makes a treasure. It's a lot of that stuff, um, and you know, hopefully something that makes uh, makes Alrin's Epiphany. Uh, strategy is like a little more, um, a little more tax because right now it is kind of, kind of chocolate and vanilla of faceless haven and, and a curve or removal spells and a top end of Valorant's Epiphany. 
And so, uh, you know, something that, that kind of shakes, maybe not shakes, but, you know, spreads uh, those things further apart, polarizes things a bit more, opens up more room in the middle for uh, for other decks to exist. I would love to see something like Blood on the Snow become really playable. I think that card's really awesome. Uh, I think those mid-range decks are really fun for a lot of players. They really like that style. And right now they're kind of, uh, kind of pinched. It's really rough. Well, where can everyone find us spencer i'll let you go first here on the old social medias you can find me at spencer each you can find uh my other podcast at need to nerd pod and then you can also see some of the other nerd stuff i'm doing on the entire he's a game media network whether it's producing sam black show whether it is i have a review coming out of mass effect 3 mason uh the f- yeah so uh the we have an editor editing that right now you can find that all on the youtubes and stuff like that so Awesome. Abe, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on twitter.com slash more nothings, M-O-R-E-N-O-T-H-I-N-G-S. I know everyone loves spelling. Um, and, you know, you can contact me directly uh, via DM or reach out through Facebook message request if you're interested in coaching. I've got good rates and stuff, and I'm, I'm really looking to... Fun to fact, there's more. a fun conversation that happens every time Oasis, Oasis gives sponsorship money about Abe's email, because it is ridiculous. Yeah, it's pretty great. I love having <laughs> picked uh, an email address that you can pronounce or spell or say like three or four different ways. So uh, how about you, Mason? Where can the people find you and your lovely work? You can find me each and every week here on Constructed Criticism. You can find me writing for Card Kingdom over there. where I talk mostly about standard and historic. And you can find me on Twitter, occasionally giving great insight, but most of the time just posting memes at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. Thank you all so much for hanging out for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Can't wait to see you all next week. And we'll see you then for another episode.